Hello, this is the Better Strangers podcast. My name is Matt Hirschberger. I am the writer and the publisher of Better Strangers. If you are new uh, to this publication, Better Strangers uh, attempts to face a bleak or scary world with hope, curiosity, and imagination. Um, I'm not going to linger too long up here at the front because I feel like if you title a podcast, your dog knows when you've masturbated, you need to just jump right into it. And so I'm going to do that. I'm not going to tease you any longer because I really want to talk about this. Um, The idea that I'm talking about comes from a book that I've been reading called um, An Immense World by Ed Young. I say reading. I've been listening to it in the audiobook form. Um, Young is a science writer for The Atlantic, and An Immense World is his exploration of a concept called the Umwelt, which is basically an animal's experience of the world. Um, And the thing that he's discussing is how fundamentally different many animals and many creatures experience the world to how humans do. Um, The, you know, the, obviously the easiest place to go in to start for this is, um, is a dog. We're all very familiar with dogs. We spend time around them. Um, And we often will, you know, we think we have an understanding of what they see. We try and put ourselves into a dog's skin and we think, oh, you know, it's just like us, but it's lower to the ground. Uh, when in reality, we, you know, we know, and I think most of us, you know, to some extent know that dogs have poorer sight than we do, but they have excellent um, uh, smelling capabilities and they're able to hear things a lot better than we do. So, what we don't always do is make the next jump to how this is different in a sensory sense and how it must mean that dogs experience the world in an entirely different way from the way that we do. So if you are going for a walk with your dog and they're trying to go off and smell things and you're trying to keep them to heal and everything, what you're really doing is you're, you're putting blinders on them. They're not, they're not able to experience the world in the way that you are. So they're, you know, sure they're getting their exercise. It's very good for them, but Allowing dogs to smell is a way of allowing dogs to have some understanding of what's going on in their surroundings. And because their knowledge of their surroundings comes from different senses than the ones that ours do, it means that they are going to have an understanding of the world that focuses on much different facts than the ones that we do. So um, the reason that a dog comes up to you and smells your hand and then smells your crotch is that that's where all of the smells are. So your hands have been touching stuff all day and by smelling your hands, they can actually get a sense of what you've been doing. Have you been cooking? Have you pooped lately? Have you been working with some sort of chemical? Have, you know, uh, have you been drinking? Um, So that's, those are all things that they can, they can figure out uh, by just smelling you. And then with your crotch, uh, they can tell what you've been up to. That's, that's stuff that they're going to be able to smell. So if your hand's been on your crotch, they're going to smell your crotch on your hands. And they're going to be like, oh, this guy's been touching his crotch. Your dog just knows when you masturbate. It also knows when you have sex. If you've been having sex with a different person than you usually do, they probably know that too. Your dog knows all of your dark, dirty secrets. They know when you farted. They know when you pooped. They know when you have gastric problems. They know every weird creepy thing that you're doing throughout your day. So, why do I think this is kind of an inspirational (laughs) fact? Um, I like the idea that 
what we are kind of in our skins, we are experiencing the world in a certain way, and we're trying to reach out and understand reality around us. But it is in large part dictated by our capabilities as humans. And uh, Young talks about dogs a good deal because we're obviously very close with dogs. But there are dozens of other animal abilities that we don't actually have any comprehension of what the experience of that would be like. So take birds of prey. We know that birds of prey have better eyesight than we do, but we don't really understand how much. They've got binocular vision, so they're able to see eight times sharper than we do, as well as much further than we do. Uh, They're also able to see at a faster frame rate, which means that they're able to see like a, a bumblebee's wings flap. For us, it's just a blur. It just blurs together. It's like, you know, it's like if you're watching a movie and stuff's happening too fast for you to see, it has to go down to slow motion for you to really see what's happened. A hawk can see that just in their day-to-day life. Now, what does this mean for a hawk? It means that a hawk is probably experiencing time slower than we are. They're able to respond to stuff quicker because they're seeing more things. When that thing happens, they're able to respond. It's just a quicker response time. They experience time at a different rate than we do. It's like they're watching the world in slow motion. So in a sense, that means you know, they live faster, but they see a lot more in that period of, of time that they're, that they're living. Um, another cool one that Yang talks about is the idea that pain is something that is not universal among animals. Uh, you know, there, there's been a long time that people have been arguing that animals can't feel pain. This is clearly bullshit. Um, we now have enough of a scientific understanding to know that animals respond to distressing stimuli in a way that, that seems to indicate very much that they feel pain. And whether or not they have consciousness or a soul in the same sense that humans do is, you know, kind of a philosophical question. But what they are acting like is they're acting like they can feel pain. But the way in which they feel pain is also very different to the way that we f- we feel pain. The example that Young uses is the naked mole rat. Um, a naked mole rat lives underground for pretty much its entire life, uh, and it lives in these kind of underground burrows where a lot of them will kind of cluster together. Um, because they're in these underground burrows, they are breathing a lot more, which means that these burrows fill up with carbon dioxide a lot quicker than they would if they were breathing out in the open air like we do. So if we were to live in rooms with concentrations of carbon dioxide like these mole rats live, it would burn our lungs. We would, we would be in extreme pain if we were feeling this because it would start to, you know, the, the, that carbon dioxide turns to acid and it would be something that would, that would actually physically hurt us. These naked mole rats don't actually feel that sort of pain. They don't, they don't have that experience of acid in the same way. So burns that we would experience as extremely painful, they, they simply do not. Now, other animals, uh, some birds, a different, you know, other different animals, uh, don't actually experience capsaicin, which is the, um, the chemical that makes food spicy. They don't experience those as heat. So that you'll, okay, you know, you can see a bird that'll be eating a ghost pepper and it won't do a thing to their intestinal system because their bodies simply do not have a reason for, for whatever reason, to process that, uh, that chemical as painful. 
So, you know, some of them are, you know, they could, you know, put a bird onto hot ones or something like that, and they would probably do pretty well. Um, all of these things that we don't even think about, you know, obviously, you know, we, we, we can kind of understand when it comes to senses that we have. So, you know, we've got, we've got taste, smell, sight, sound, all of those things. But there are other senses which animals have which we simply don't. Uh, elephants, for example, pick up vibrations through their feet in the ground. Um, Bugs do this all of the time. He talks about researchers who will go around and they'll clip microphones onto uh, leaves and will find that different types of insects will actually communicate to anything else on the same leaf using vibrations. And the variety of sounds that they make are massively different. Like it's some of them sound like very deep and guttural, like, you know, human human sounds. Other ones are high-pitched. Some of them are rhythmic. Uh, they can sound like music. Um, and these are all things that we don't, we don't even see happening, but these are, these are happening all around us. Is Every time you walk past a tree, there's communication happening on that tree. Uh, one place that we do have a little bit more of a conception of how this works is, you know, with spider webs, um, where spiders are actually capable of, um, you know, where they can tell when something touches their, their web. Um, but he points out that for a spider, their web is actually an extension of their, of their sensory system. They, they, they really have this ability to tell a lot about the world based off of what they're picking up through their web. So these are not things that, that we factor into our understanding of the world, but um, it, animals and all other creatures around us, and he, you know, and he doesn't talk as much about you know the the you know plants or fungi or things like that, even though there's some cool stuff on there's a there's a documentary I think it's still on Netflix called Fantastic Fungi, which talks about how fungus is capable of kind of communicating over long distances and how it sort of spreads out and it's. You know, it's you know, actually if you've if you've been watching the 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 Last of Us, you probably have some sense of it with the way that the mycelium, the uh, the little tendrils, the creepy tendrils that come out and tell the other zombies where people are. That actually is something that fungus is capable of. It has these giant underground networks of these little tendrils, which are able to kind of like you know send messages to um, to other fungus in a way that we still don't fully comprehend. Um, but a big part of the problem is that we just we just don't we lack the capacity to be able to even absorb that this information exists, let alone imagine what it must be like to experiencing experience it. Um, I unfortunately uh, spent too much time pausing and being like, "Wow!" on the an immense world, and so I ended up losing my uh, my. I, I had it, you know it was an audiobook, so it returned automatically after two weeks, and so I didn't end up getting to finish the book. So I had to go back on another fifteen week wait list. Um, but uh, I, I am going to finish it eventually, and in the meantime, I decided, okay, I want to see what you know an example of a human trying to um, think like an animal in fiction looks like. And uh, so I picked up, unfortunately, I picked up Garth Stein's An Art, The Art of Racing in the Rain, which uh, if you haven't heard of it, it's told through the perspective of a dog. The dog's owner is a race car driver and his wife gets cancer and it's this whole big tearjerker thing. Um, the dog doesn't seem to really think in dog terms. It, it spends an enormous amount of time describing women's boobs which I don't, I don't know. I don't think that that would be a thing dogs would focus on. It hasn't been in my experience, but 
he occasionally will use smell as a plot device. Like, ah, I could smell that the wife had cancer or something like that. But otherwise, the act of imagination in that is really, we, you know, even when we, when we imagine animals, we're imagining them as humans in animal skins. We're not imagining them with their own sensory capabilities and trying to get a real, you know, understanding of what they might feel their way through the world like. Uh, a really cool book that's kind of on a similar topic uh, is Zaya Tong's Reality Bubble. And she, to some extent, talks about these, these different capabilities that humans um, have or don't have. So, you know, she talks about, you know, our blind spots when it comes to um, sight. So uh, hawks, many animals, are able to see a wider spectrum of colors than we are. They can see infrared light or ultraviolet light. Uh, some birds see the world with more colors than we do in a way that we can't even comprehend. So imagine if you can only see the world in black and white and someone's trying to explain color to you. Many animals see the world at the next degree up with a greater combination of colors than we could possibly even imagine. We can't even simulate it. Um, some animals are able to see the world through um, through a kind of uh, I, I think I think it was lions that Yang was talking about, but they see the world this kind. Of, I don't think it was lions. It was in this infrared light, which actually resembles what the movie The Predator looked like. No, snakes. It was snakes. Snakes see the world kind of like the Predator does, um, where they're seeing heat. Uh, rather than, than you know, um, they're seeing that type of thing radiating off of people rather than, you know, the type of light that we see. Um, so one of the, you know, and, and so actually there are instances in which humans have been able to see things like ultraviolet light. Um, actually during World War II, the uh, British military intelligence used people who had had cataract surgery at a young age because if they'd had these t cataracts removed from their eyes, um, they actually, the lens in their eyes would be broken and the lens is what filters out a lot of ultraviolet light. And so the military intelligence used people who had had this broken lens because they were able to see U-boats in the English Channel that would be like signaling to each other um, because they had the ability to see ultraviolet light. So these things aren't entirely outside our capabilities. There are actually some, uh, mostly women, that see the world in a greater range of color like these, like these birds do. Um, it's very hard to know who does because, it, you know, it's, it's impossible to explain. Um, but there are people, um, they've, done, they've done a bunch of research and they find that like it's one in every however many thousands of women is capable of seeing a wider range of color. Um, I don't know if it happens in men, but, uh, it does, it is, it does exist in the human, human race. It's just not on a wide scale. So having an understanding of these different blind spots is important for us kind of getting a sense of where we are in the world. You know, um, I, I this, this links into something that the, the psychedelic, uh, guru Timothy Leary talked about. Timothy Leary, if you haven't heard of him, was the guy that really promoted uh, acid very early on in the 1960s. He ended up going on the run from the law, and he had a truly wild life. Like he was, you know, all over the world and was involved in briefly in revolutionary movements, but mostly he just wanted to do a bunch of psychedelic drugs and trip. He was a Harvard researcher until he got fired for, for introducing a bunch of kids to these drugs. 
Um, and he kind of ended up talking about how psychedelics, you know, and, and whenever you're a hippie, kind of be like, you know, like, oh, yeah, you're expanding your mind. Like, you know, that was Timothy Leary was one of the people that really pushed that. And he talked about how uh, psychedelics help you understand what he called your reality tunnel. And your reality tunnel is basically the limits of your capability to comprehend and process things. So you're going to see reality in a certain sense, but another person has a different reality tunnel and the next person has a different reality tunnel. And it can be very hard to tell that there are these limitations and it can be very easy to mistake your tunnel for all of reality. And uh, this actually ended up being largely in teaching with, um, with a lot of Buddhist, a lot, largely in keeping with a lot of Buddhist teachings. Um, so, uh, that's why like one of his, uh, partners, um, became Ram Das, who was a kind of a Buddhist guru. And they, they talked about how you could get to a point either through psychedelics or through certain types of meditation where you could start to break down your reality tunnel and have a better understanding of just the limits of what you're able to perceive. Um, if you've ever taken a large dose of edible or, you know, magic mushrooms or LSD, you might've had an experience like this where you start to understand that your perception of the world is not necessarily as static as you once thought it was. So, uh, yeah, this is all interesting to me. It's all inspiring to me because it shows that, you know, we, you know, we have these amazing senses that we've evolved to experience reality in a different way, but it's hardly a complete understanding of reality. Um, ultimately we do all still have to live inside these reality tunnels. Um, but it is best to be humble about our perceptions and our abilities. Um, and I think one of the best ways that we can really start to, uh, have a better appreciation of how varied and different experience of the world is, is by trying to imagine just what the animals around us are, are seeing or experiencing. Um, you know, you're never going to be able to do a perfect job of this because you just can't comprehend what it's like to communicate through vibrations in your feet. I mean, go ahead, give it a try. That would actually kind of be a fun, a fun experience experiment to do. But, you know, these types of things, Thinking about these types of things will maybe have you, uh, maybe maybe get you a better appreciation of um, just how limited our worldview is, and how uh, if you're ever feeling like everything's completely shit, you don't actually see the vast majority of what's going on. So uh, that is my uh, that's that's my little hopeful tidbit for the week. Um, I'll be back again on Monday uh, for a book rex. Um, if you haven't subscribed, please go to the bottom of the of this this uh, the article that you got this in your inbox from and subscribe. Um, you can pick and choose which of the columns that you want to do. I do book recommendations. I occasionally do like you know weekly roundups. I do a weekly column on Wednesday. I'm also starting a new travel anti travel vertical um, called psychogeography, which is kind of about getting in touch with the place that you live rather than going out and trying to like you know be a tourist somewhere else. So. Um, yeah, definitely, uh, definitely give me a follow and I will be back next week.